Welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynn Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all your sisters and brothers in spirit. And since every blessed day is another day given us to represent the love of our mighty I Am Presence as God intended, let us strive to make every day of our lives count in love this week, next week, and all the days after by exemplifying those higher qualities and thoughts and actions for all life everywhere, including Mother Earth, just as the living God, the one pulse of all life, demonstrates love for us in every breath we take. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and life, and y'all be loved. Jesus passed a series of years among the Essenes. He submitted to their discipline, studied with them the secrets of nature, and the occult power of healing. To develop his spirit, he gained entire mastery over his body. Not a day passed without self-questioning and meditation on the destiny of humanity. That was a memorable night for the Order of Essenes and the new adept, when he received in profoundest secrecy the superior initiation of the fourth degree, the one granted only in the special case of a prophetic mission, requested by the brother, and confirmed by the elders. A meeting was held in a cave cut into the mountain and resembling a vast hall with an altar of stone seats. The chief of the order was there with a few elders. Sometimes two or three initiates, prophetesses also, Essenes, were admitted to the mysterious ceremony. Bearing torches and branches of palm trees, they greeted the new initiate who was clothed in a robe of white linen, as bridegroom and king, the one they had seen in vision, and whom they now looked upon perhaps for the last time. Then, the chief of the order, generally an old centenarian, Josephus states that the Essenes lived to an advanced age, offered him the golden chalice as a symbol of the final initiation, containing the wine of the Lord's vineyard, symbol of divine inspiration. Some said that Moses and the Seventy had drunk therefrom, others trace it back from Abraham, who received from Melchizedek this very initiation under the elements of bread and wine. The elders never offered the cup to anyone in whom they had not recognized, with distinct certainty, the signs of a prophetic mission. But no one could define this mission, he was defined it himself, such is the law of the initiates, nothing from without, everything from within. Henceforth he was free, master of his own actions, liberated from the order, a very hierophant, obedient to the impulses of the spirit, which could fling him into the depths or transport him on high, far above scenes of torture and human passion. When after the songs and prayers and sacramental words of the elder the Nazarene took the cup, a pale ray of the sun shooting through a rugged mountain crag ran in and about the torches and the flowing white garments of the Essene prophetesses. They too shuddered as they saw it fall on the Galilean's beautiful countenance, now overshadowed with a look of infinite sorrow. Were his thoughts dwelling on the poor wretches of Silim, 
Had he already, in that ever-present anguish, caught a glimpse of the path he was to traverse? About this time, John the Baptist was preaching on the banks of the Jordan. He was not an Essene but a prophet of the people, belonging to the sturdy race of Judah. Driven into the wilderness by a fierce unyielding piety, he had there, in prayer, fasting, and mortification, lived the life of the strictest asceticism. Over his bare suntan skin, he wore a camel's hair cloak, symbol of the penitence he wished to impose both on himself and on his people. Deeply did he feel Israel's distress, and ardently did he await deliverance. According to the Jewish idea, he imagined the Messiah would soon come as an avenger and a judge, that, like another Maccabeus, he would rouse the people to revolt, drive out the Romans, punish the guilty, and finally enter Jerusalem in triumph, where, in peace and justice, he would re-establish the kingdom of Israel over all nations. He announced to the multitudes, who eagerly drank in his words, that the time was nigh for the coming of this Messiah, adding that they might prepare for it in a spirit of true repentance. Adopting the Essenian custom of ablution and transforming it, he had looked upon baptism in the Jordan as a visible symbol, a public accomplishment of the inner purification he insisted upon. This new ceremony, this earnest preaching to immense crowds of people, with the wilderness as a background, and beside the sacred waters of the Jordan, near the rugged mountains of Perea and Judea, seized hold of the imagination, and attracted multitudes. It recalled the glorious days of the prophets of old, and gave the people what the temple could not give them, an inner shock, and, after the terrors of repentance had passed, a vague though mighty hope. Jesus, who felt the prophetic calling even more emphatic within his soul, though as yet he was still feeling his way, came also to the desert of the Jordan, accompanied by a few Essenes, who already acknowledged him as master. He wished to see the Baptist, to listen to his message, and be baptized in public. His desire was to present himself in a humble and respectful attitude towards the prophet who had the courage to denounce the present rulers, and arouse from slumber, the soul of Israel. He saw the rough ascetic, hairy and bearded, with his prophetic lion-like head, standing in a wooden pulpit under a rustic tent covered with branches and goatskins. All around among the scanty desert shrubs was a mighty crowd, an entire camp, publicans, soldiers of Herod, Samaritans, Levites from Jerusalem, Idamines with their flocks of sheep, even Arabs with their camels, tents and caravans arrested by the voice crying in the wilderness, and this voice of thunder passed over these multitudes. It said, Repent ye, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He called the Pharisees and scribes a race of vipers. He added that the axe was already laid unto the root of the trees, and said of the Messiah, I baptize you with water only, but he shall baptize you with fire. Then, about sunset, he saw the crowds press towards a cove on the water's bank, and Herod's mercenaries bend their rough backs beneath the water poured over them by the Baptist. He drew nearer, John did not know Jesus, knew nothing whatever concerning him, but he recognized the Essene by his linen garment. He saw him, a mere unit in the crowd, enter the water up to the girdle, and humbly bend to receive the baptismal sprinkling. When the neophyte arose, the savage preacher's fiery eyes met the Galilean's calm, gentle gaze. A quiver ran through the man of the wilderness as he saw the look of wondrous sweetness beaming from the eyes of Jesus, and involuntarily the question escaped his lips, Art thou the Messiah? The mysterious Essene made no reply, but with bowed head and crossed hands, he awaited the blessing. John knew that silence was the law of the Essene novices. After solemnly extending both hands, the Nazarene disappeared with his companions among the water reeds. Could it be that he were the Messiah? The Baptist's question also found an echo in the soul of Jesus. 
Ever since his consciousness had sprung to life, he had found God within himself, and the certainty of the kingdom of heaven in the radiant beauty of his visions. Then came the suffering of humanity which had filled his heart with the awful outpour of its anguish. The wise Essenes had taught him the secret of religions and of mysteries, they had shown him the spiritual decadence of humanity, and its expectation of a savior. But how could he find the strength needed to rescue it from the pit? And now, the direct call of John the Baptist fell on the silence of his meditations like a thunderbolt from Sinai. Could he be the Messiah? Jesus could answer this question only by inmost meditation. Hence this retreat, this forty days fast, narrated by Matthew in the form of a symbolic legend. The temptation in reality represents in the life of Jesus this great crisis, this sovereign vision of truth, which all prophets, all religious initiates must infallibly experience, before beginning their works. Jesus, the Last Great Initiate, by Edward Charest, 1908. Chapter 7 Of the tenets of the Druzes, nothing authentic has ever come to light. The popular belief amongst their neighbors is, that they adore an idol in the form of a calf. King, the Gnostics and their remains. O ye lords of truth without fault, who are forever cycling for eternity, save me from the annihilation of this region of the two truths. Egyptian Ritual of the Dead Pythagoras correctly regarded the ineffable name of God, as the key to the mysteries of the universe. Pankost, blue and red light. In the next two chapters we shall notice the most important of the Christian secret sects, the so-called heresies which sprang into existence between the 1st and 4th centuries of our era. Glancing rapidly at the Ephites and Nazareans, we shall pass to their signs which yet exist in Syria and Palestine, under the name of Druzes of Mount Lebanon and near Basra or Basara, in Persia, under that of Mendians, or disciples of St. John. All these sects have an immediate connection with our subject, for they are of Kabbalistic parentage and have once held to the secret wisdom religion, recognizing as the one supreme, the mystery god of the ineffable name. Noticing these numerous secret societies of the past, we will bring them into direct comparison with several of the modern. We will conclude with a brief survey of the Jesuits, and of that venerable nightmare of the Roman Catholic Church, Modern Freemasonry. All of these modern as well as ancient fraternities, present Freemasonry accepted, were and are more or less connected with magic, practically, as well as theoretically, and every one of them, Freemasonry not accepted, was, and still is accused of demonolatry, blasphemy, and licentiousness. Our object is not to write the history of either of them, but only to compare these sorely abused communities with the Christian sects, past and present, and then, taking historical facts for our guidance, to defend the secret science as well as the men who are its students and champions, against any unjust imputation. H.P. Blavatsky One by one the tide of time engulfed the sects of the early centuries, until of the whole number only one survived in its primitive integrity. That one still exists, still teaches the doctrine of its founder, still exemplifies its faith in works of power. The quicksands which swallowed up every other outgrowth of the religious agitation of the times of Jesus, with its records, relics, and traditions, proved firm ground for this. 
Driven from their native land, its members found refuge in Persia, and today the anxious traveler may converse with the direct descendants of the disciples of John, who listened, on the Jordan shore, to the man sent from God, and were baptized and believed. This curious people, numbering 30,000 or more, are miscalled Christians of St. John, but in fact should be known by their old name of Nazareans, or their new one of Mendians. To term them Christians, is wholly unwarranted. They neither believe in Jesus as Christ, nor accept his atonement, nor adhere to his church, nor revere its holy scriptures. Neither do they worship the Jehovah God of the Jews and Christians, a circumstance which of course proves that their founder, John the Baptist, did not worship him either. And if not, what right has he to take a place in the Bible, or in the portrait gallery of Christian saints? Still further, if Ferho was his God, and he was a man sent by God, he must have been sent by Lord Ferho and in his name baptized and preached? Now, if Jesus was baptized by John, the inference is that he was baptized according to his own faith, therefore, Jesus too, was a believer in Ferho, or Faho, as they call him, a conclusion that seems the more warranted by his silence as to the name of his father. And why should the hypothesis that Faho is but one of the many corruptions of Fo or Fo, as the Tibetans and Chinese call Buddha, appear ridiculous? In the north of Nepal, Buddha is more often called Fo than Buddha. The book of Mahawansa shows how early the work of Buddhistic proselytism began in Nepal, and history teaches that Buddhist monks crowded into Syria and Babylon in the century preceding our era, and that Buddhas, Bodhisattva, the alleged Chaldean, was the founder of Sabism or Baptism. H. P. Blavatsky With the actual Baptists, El Magtasala or Nazareans do believe is fully set forth in other places, for they are the very Nazarenes of whom we have spoken so much, and from whose codex we have quoted. Persecuted and threatened with annihilation, they took refuge in the Nestorian body, and so allowed themselves to be arbitrarily classed as Christians, but as soon as opportunity offered, they separated and now, for several centuries have not even nominally deserved the appellation. That they are, nevertheless, so called by ecclesiastical writers, is perhaps not very difficult to comprehend. They know too much of early Christianity to be left outside the pale, to bear witness against it with their traditions, without the stigma of heresy and backsliding being fastened upon them to weaken confidence in what they might say. But where else can science find so good a field for biblical research as among this two neglected people? No doubt of their inheritance of the Baptist doctrine, their traditions are without a break. What they teach now, their forefathers taught at every epoch where they appear in history. They are the disciples of that John who is said to have foretold the advent of Jesus, baptized him, and declared that the latchet of his shoe, he, John, was not worthy to unloose. As they too, the messenger and the Messiah, stood in the Jordan, and the elder was consecrating the younger, his own cousin, to, humanly speaking, the heavens opened and God himself, in the shape of a dove, descended in a glory upon his beloved son. How then, if this tale be true, can we account for the strange infidelity which we find among these surviving Nazareans? So far from believing Jesus the only begotten Son of God, they actually told the Persian missionaries, who, in the 17th century, first discovered them to Europeans, that the Christ of the New Testament was a false teacher, and that the Jewish system, as well as that of Jesus, came from the realm of darkness. Who knows better than they? Where can more competent living witnesses be found? Christian ecclesiastics would force upon us an anointed Savior heralded by John, and the disciples of this very Baptist, from the earliest centuries, 
have stigmatized this ideal personage as an imposter, and his putative father, Jehovah, a spurious god, the Ilda Bath of the Ephites. Unlucky for Christianity will be the day when some fearless and honest scholar shall persuade their elders to let him translate the contents of their secret books and compile their hoary traditions. It is a strange delusion that makes some writers think that the Nazareans have no other sacred literature, no other literary relics than four doctrinal works, and that curious volume full of astrology and magic which they are bound to peruse at the sunset hour on every Sol's day, Sunday. H.P. Blavatsky I Am Discourses, Volume 17 I have given you a secret tonight of pouring love into the world that is darkened by hate. And so you see, the door is open by which love can be the authority in this world, and rules as is intended. If you will let me render this service, then you shall not have cause to regret it. The world must have our love or sink into oblivion. Love is the only thing that can save, and the firepower of my victorious love is ever yours to use without limit. And as you use it, will you find yourselves becoming it? And then love will not be difficult for you to give into conditions that need purifying. The great law of life is very wonderful in its gift of the sacred fire into the use of mankind. So tonight, may I remind you to charge yourselves with the firepower of my strength of cosmic Christ love, and you will not find the bodies weary. You will not find a sense of weakness manifesting, because I assure you, my cosmic Christ love is not weak. It is the firepower of long centuries of use and it brings strength that nothing else can give. If I were you, I would charge myself with the firepower of cosmic Christ's strength, for were you to draw that fire in and around you, of cosmic Christ's strength, it means the strengthening of the outer structure by the fire of our love, which is the law of everlasting life. Within that fire is the youth and beauty you have sought so long. You have scarcely thought of my luminous presence as a rejuvenating agent, have you? But it is in reality, and when you become more aware of all that is within the firepower of my cosmic Christ love, the more you understand that, by your use of it, the closer you will draw to me in the visible, tangible body, and the more of my power can you have for use in the physical octave. So precious ones, I may not stay long these evenings when we commune together for a short while, but each time I come, I will give you one that is paramount, which is easy to remember. And then by your use of that will you make it your own, and as it becomes a part of you, you will find no longer the veils between. It takes the firepower of our love to consume the veils that are on your side of life. They are not on mine. I didn't build them. Therefore, if you use my luminous presence, knowing it is heavily charged with the firepower of my cosmic Christ victory, my cosmic Christ love, it will burn out everything that is a veil between us. And may I say, it is the great crucible in which your problems can be dissolved, your mistakes consumed and corrected, and the dominion you have sought so long becomes yours to use as the scepter of power in the physical world, to do that which nothing else can do, except our firepower of victorious love. My dear ones, it is a secret, and yet it is no secret. It is ever before the use of mankind, but if they do not understand it or do not use it, they cannot have its blessing. It is just one of those magnificent gifts of life which forever release its blessing, only through use. Beloved Master Jesus the Christ
Now since you have been told to call forth the authority of cosmic Christ love to rule the world in order to consume the hate that sustains war, then this is a very important part of your use of the sacred fire to that end. So when it seems difficult, because of individuals' creations, to pour the love that would solve the situation, you can certainly hold the picture of my luminous presence in blazing white fire, and as it descends to do its perfect work, and you hold it there with clear vision, the authority of cosmic Christ love becomes the law and action there that raises that into the perfection that I promised when I said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all mankind unto me and into a like perfection. My luminous presence is ever with you, very real, a scepter of power, and failure is impossible. I commend you to the joy of its use, the victory of its freedom, and the glory of its protection, that you may feel secure against that which is not love. The firepower of my victorious cosmic love, the cosmic Christ of eternity, is master forever, and I fear not. And neither will you fear when you feel the luminous presence and firepower of that love wrap itself about a condition or a person or a place, and they're set to work to make that part of the universe the victory of my love forever. And love is the fulfilling of the law. Now you know secrets that individuals have sought the world over to attain and yet did not understand. Yet to you it is plain. It is simple. You have but to try it out and find the power of my victorious love concentrated in the firepower of my luminous presence. Just let its flame blaze and do for you that which you cannot do for yourselves as yet, until love has expanded more in you its authority and power over the energy of your own feeling world. So to its victory and freedom do I commend you tonight. To my luminous presence, visible and tangible to you all, do I call your attention, that love may reign supreme. This is one of my gifts at this time of the year when my heart would so gladly consume from the earth that which is not its love. May you know me from tonight in a very much more powerful, all-controlling, personal way than you have ever known before, for I am coming closer into the outer for that hour when I consume from the earth that which sought to destroy me. To that victory do I hold your attention, and my love shall call you until you arise eternally free. Thank you with my heart's fire power of that love tonight, ever abiding within you and around you, and giving you the strength to go forward to victory and hold the protection of that which serves the light. Thank you with my heart's love, for this hour. Beloved Master Jesus the Christ. Thank you.